Man, I, I feel like it's been forever since I preached, guys. Uh, I like it when other people have the chance to preach, but I like to preach. And so I've had this thing really kind of percolating in my spirit the last few weeks. And, um, and so on Easter Sunday, I talked about this changes everything. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything for us. And um, when I say that, it's not like some kind of overstatement or anything. It literally changed everything. Have you noticed that your calendar, today we are in the year 2019. Why? Because Jesus was the pivotal point in history. He changed the calendars. He changed the way that we keep time. Why? Because he is that big of a deal, you know? Touch your neighbor and say, he's a pretty big deal. He's a pretty big deal. So um, uh, today, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about grace and the law, okay? How many of you have ever heard somebody say, we don't live under law anymore, we live under grace? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. How many of you have never heard that before? Raise your hand, okay? All right, cool. So here's the thing. We, we don't often understand kind of the differences between the law. We know that there's this law and there's, you know, kind of the Ten Commandments. Everybody kind of knows the Ten Commandments. Even non-Christians kind of know the Ten Commandments. And everybody agrees that it's kind of good that you, you shouldn't murder people, right? Like, that's not a bad idea. Let's not murder people. Hey, let's not, let's not, you know, steal from people. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Hey, don't have sex with somebody else's wife or husband. Okay, that's that's good plan, right? So everybody is kind of on board with, hey, these things are kind of generally a good thing to, to adopt as a society, as a culture, right? Um, but but then you have in, in the church world, when Jesus came, he changed the way that we relate to the law. Matter of fact, he says this real cryptic thing in Matthew chapter 5 that we're going to study today where he says, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. To which everybody goes, what does that mean? Right? And so we're going we're gonna to dig into that today a little bit. And um, I want to give you a quick overview of the law through Scripture. And if you guys are not familiar with the Bible Project, the Bible Project puts together these awesome videos that... Um, describe different themes or ideas in scripture. And so we're going to watch this um, Bible project video on the law, and then I'm going to come up and preach on it, okay? You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder... Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family. 
who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion. And you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. 
He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. All right, that was pretty cool, right? You guys have a better grip on the law in Scripture and kind of how things work? Good, let's pray. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to still preach. Some of you, don't, please don't say, aw, all right? It'll make me feel bad and I'll go home and cry. All right, so uh, I want to flip over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, but I want you to understand um, Matthew's gospel. What is he trying to do? Now, Matthew, remember, was a tax collector, right? And Jesus picks him up as a disciple, and tax collectors had their own kind of category as sinners. Anytime people would refer to sinners, they would say tax collectors and sinners. Like, we're not even going to add tax collectors to the normal category of sinner. We're going to give them their own special bracket. We hate them that much, right? And, and, and really, opinions on tax collectors haven't really changed a lot over the years. Most people still kind of feel the same way. Um, but so here, here we have Matthew, and Matthew's writing this story of Jesus' life And what he does, he's really concerned with showing the fact that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. So all throughout Matthew's gospel, he's showing the kingship of Jesus and that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. And so he gives a lot of teaching. And it's interesting because if you kind of parallel the life of Jesus and the life of the people of Israel, you see a lot of connections, right? So the people of Israel, they they sojourned in Egypt, right? They, they were in Egypt for a period of time. Do you remember Jesus when Herod was going to kill all of the babies and Jesus' family went to Egypt and they were there for a period of time? Um, remember that um, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, they, the, the Israelites had to pass through the Jordan River to get into their promised land. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and came out and began his ministry. There were 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jesus had 12 disciples. You see all these little parallel connecting points. But as Matthew's going through his gospel, there's not really a clear connection on the law. And it's kind of like, wow, where's this law connection come in? Well, it comes in in Matthew chapter 5. You remember Moses climbed up on the mountain. He met with God and God gave him the law and he gave the law to the people, right? So what does Jesus do on the Sermon on the Mount? He climbs up the side of the Mount of Olives and he begins to teach the law to the 12 disciples and the others that had gathered around. It's kind of neat, right? Neat parallel. The problem is, is that some of it is very difficult, not really to understand. It's difficult to do. And it's difficult to pay attention to because we don't really like what it says. I read a quote from a rabbi earlier this week, and he said, what I wrestle with with Christians is that we have an entire group of people who try to live their life in a way that they can ignore the Sermon on the Mount. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. But let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, and um, we'll begin with verse 17. 
So uh, it says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So now imagine the disciples are sitting around Jesus' feet as he's teaching on the law now. And, and in Jesus' own group of disciples, these 12 guys, you have Matthew, who would have been considered what people would call a minimalist when it comes to the law, okay? It applies minimally. I'm still a, I'm still a Jew. I'm still a believer in God. I still serve Yahweh, but I'll be a sinner. I'll betray my people. I'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. And that was kind of his mindset. And so he would have been considered like a minimalist with regard to the law. It just wasn't that important to him, but he still identified as a Jewish person. Then you have this other guy that we don't know a lot about from scripture, but we know a lot about the sect of people that he's attached to. And his name is Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter, two different guys, but there's Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a group of people that were so passionate about God's law. They felt like if you could keep God's law well enough, you would usher in the kingdom of God. And the zealots were known, they would wear these long robes and they would carry these short daggers in their robes and they were known to go around and just stab Roman citizens randomly trying to kill their oppressors so that they could usher in the kingdom of God because if they were able to vanquish the oppressors, they would be able to fulfill the law and thus usher in the kingdom of God. Sounds like a good group of guys, right? So in Jesus' own camp of disciples, you've got these two very different ideas about what the law is about and how to observe it and what you're supposed to do. And that really hasn't changed a lot over the years. We still have people that are minimalist and they say, well, whatever, I just do whatever. I just kind of enjoy partying and doing my thing and whatever I want to do, I do. And, you know, hey, Paul has this great statement where he says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Can I say, please, if you're going to live a licentious life, don't use that scripture as a, pr- as a proof text to do so, okay? It is out of context. Paul is quoting something that he's writing back to the Corinthian church where he's saying, hey, guys, I've heard you say this, that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And so I just need you to stop that whole nonsense because we, we have to behave differently, okay? So Paul kind of brings this whole thing, and that's another sermon for another time. But as, as you're sitting here, you have these two camps. And so, so, um, so as Simon the Zealot, I, I kind of imagine, this is the way my brain works, I imagine the disciples sitting around the feet of Jesus as he's teaching, and he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, no, I came to accomplish their purpose. And I, I can imagine Simon just being like, looking across the, the mountainside at Matthew, sitting on the other side of the group and being like, see, this is what I've been trying to tell you, Matthew. And Matthew sitting over there ashamed, like, man, I've been blowing it this whole time. And then verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. How about that? So Jesus is making this this statement that says, hey, the law is not going to pass away. Matter of fact, Jesus delighted in the law. We know that because Psalm 1, 1 through 2 says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. So his opening statement is, I did not come to abolish the law. 
I came to fulfill the law. <clears throat> now we skip down to verse 19. It says, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to go ahead and read verse 20, and then I'll kind of put these two together. But, but verse 20 says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To which all of us sitting in this room today are like, wait a second. What? I don't under, hang on. I thought we weren't, like, I didn't think that you could perform your way into the favor of God. I didn't think that you could, like, do good enough to get into heaven. So let me just clarify, that's not what he's talking about, okay? This is not performance-based religion, right? Scripture says, uh, it is by grace, or it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, right? So if we could be good enough to gain access to relationship with God, then we could stand back and boast and say, look how good I am. Like I'm a JV sinner. You guys are all varsity sinners, but I'm a JV sinner. I'm a little bit better than everybody else, right? I don't quite do it. So it becomes a source of pride and, and, and kind of becomes a place of contempt where you're elevating your, yourself to a position to be like God. And isn't that what got Satan in trouble? Isn't that what got him kicked out of heaven? So the idea that you can exalt yourself enough to gain access to the presence of God is faulty thinking. It's blown up thinking. So you can't perform well enough to get into relationship with God. So what does it mean? What does this mean? Well, if you go back to verse 19, it says, um, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. The least in the what? Kingdom of heaven. So in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? It's included there. And if you obey God's law and, and, and teach them, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me explain the Pharisees. The Pharisees are good they're really, really good. They're professional good people, right? Like they get paid to be good. There's nobody gooder than the Pharisees. Everybody walks around, they're like, oh man, these guys are so amazing. Like, look, he's got the box on his head and the whole thing. He's, he is serious. Look at how long his tassels are. Those are like seriously holy tassels. Look at that guy. Look how clean he is. He's always washing his hands. Man, this guy is amazing, right? And so they feel all puffed up and they feel really good about themselves. And Jesus says, even though these guys look good, and Jesus actually says in, in later parts of Scripture, he says, they're actually whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. Wow. That was serious, right? And so Jesus is saying, hey, you have to be more righteous than these guys if you're going to enter. Now, you need to understand what righteousness is. Righteousness is not something that you do. It's something that Christ did. You understand this? Your righteousness is called impugned. So it's given to you 
by Christ. He did the law perfectly because you can't, and he gave his righteousness to you so that when the Father looks at you, if you're in relationship with the Son, all he sees is Jesus when he sees you. That's good news. That's good news. The problem is, is when you get out of relationship with the Son, and you're no longer in alignment with Jesus, you're no longer following him. So think about the picture this way. If, if Jesus is constantly moving in the direction of the Father, and you're following Jesus, you're right behind him all the time. And so when God is looking your direction, he's looking at Jesus every time. Now those moments when you get off and you start going over here and doing your own thing, and you stay out of fellowship with Jesus, you've just moved yourself into the side of God, and consequently, the judgment of God. Why does the scripture say when there are going to be people that show up in heaven, they say, Lord, Lord, you don't understand. We cast out demons in your name, and we healed the sick in your name, and he's going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. He didn't say anything about how good they are or how not good they are. Matter of fact, he, he lauds some of the great things that they did. He says, yeah, I, I, I see that. You, you did. You cast out some demons, and you did some fantastic, excellent, but I, I just didn't know you. So, so if your focus is on the law, if your focus is on being good and doing good, and I got to be good enough, and I got to, you're always going to fall short. We don't have relationship with the law. We have relationship with Jesus who fulfilled the law. And he's the one that puts us in right standing with the law and with God. You see how this works? Okay, let's move on. Uh, verse, verse 21, Jesus starts to break it down a little bit because he raises the standard on the law. Because a lot of people would say, well, hey, we get to do more things now that, that Jesus has come because we're not under law, we're under grace. That means you can kind of do what you want. Remember, we talked about this. And Jesus says, okay, let's talk about that for a second. You've heard it said that you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And everybody's like, yeah, that is what we've heard. That's a good rule, God. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Whoa, Jesus, I thought you said that we were not like under law anymore, but we were under grace. That sounds awful heavy-handed. He says, if you're going to make the law the standard, I'm going to raise the bar for you. If the law is going to be what you shoot at, I'm going to prove to you that you're never going to hit that bar. This is intense, right? And so, so he goes on and he gives these kind of six examples. He talks about anger. It's interesting because in verse 23 he says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, here's, here's the thing that's interesting about this. 
For some people, it was a once in a lifetime deal to actually go to the temple and make your sacrifices. Some people, it was an 80 mile journey to go from where they were to the temple. They would take an animal with them from their herd and they would take it to the temple. They would get to the temple. They would pay the, pay the prices that they had to pay and they would go and give their animal to the priest and the priest would sacrifice their animal. And this was like their once in a lifetime moment to offer sacrifice to God. And, and Jesus says, hey, look, even if you've done all of this, even if you've traveled all this way, if you get to that altar and you remember that you're holding a grudge against someone, you need to stop right in that moment, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go 80 miles back all the way to your house, make things right with that person and then come back and offer your sacrifice. Why? Because what's going on in your heart is more important than what's going on with your body. So if your heart's not right, don't you dare offer that sacrifice because I won't accept it. See, because God's never been after our actions. He's always been after our hearts. And so this is the thing with this law, grace, tension. And this is why Jesus changed the way that we interact. And then he goes on in verse 27. He says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, any one of you who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Whoa, Jesus, you're raising the standard again. I thought we were lowering the bar here. I thought we were trying to make this easier. Jesus says, no, I'm not trying to make it easier. I'm trying to get to the heart of this thing. And the heart is, the heart of this issue is that before adultery ever takes place in a bedroom, it takes place in your eyes. It takes place in your heart. And if you don't have that right, you don't have anything right. So the big issue is what's going on in your heart. The big issue is what's going on in your heart. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. And then he he uses this extreme hyperbole and he says, so if your eye, even your good eye, I like that, even your good eye. My brother and I, when we're working with tools and sometimes we don't have our safety glasses on, uh, we'll, we'll call each other and be like, hey, man, you, you need to put on some safety glasses. And one time I was working with my brother, and he's cutting some stuff on a saw, and I said, hey, man, you need to get your glasses on. And he goes, he goes don't worry, I'm covering my good eye. And it's, that's kind of our joke. But when I, every time I read this, I think of my brother, even cover your good eye. Um, so if, even if your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That's extreme. He says, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So what he's saying is, if your eye creates a problem in your heart, you need to do something extreme about it. And, and, and clearly Jesus is not saying, you know, take a screwdriver to your eyeball. What he's, he is saying, you need to do something serious. Maybe it's throw away your laptop. Maybe it's go to a flip phone instead of a smartphone. If something is causing you to lust, you probably need to change the way that you interact with that thing. So Jesus is saying, be extreme, stop it, because it's critical to your spiritual health. Then he goes on, he talks about divorce, he talks about making vows, he talks about revenge, and he goes on and talks about loving your enemies, and and all of these things that Jesus goes through it's just so significant. And, and here's the thing that's interesting to me. 
the choice that Jesus wanted for us was never supposed to be a choice about right and wrong. Jesus never wanted us put in a position of choosing right and wrong. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible talks about how God planted all kinds of trees in the Garden of Eden, and he said, you can eat of any tree you want, just don't eat from this one. What was the one tree called? Knowledge of good and evil. And there's another tree in the garden that was very powerful that God did want them to eat from, and it was called the tree of life. What what does God say to Adam and Eve will happen if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They're going to die, right? Death would come. So the choice has always been not a choice between right and wrong. Right and wrong are fruit of the same tree. The choice is between life and death. And this is the choice that Jesus is pointing out in Matthew. He's saying the choice has always been and is now life or death. What are you going to choose? Do you want to choose life or do you want to choose death? So how does Jesus deal with things? How does Jesus deal with things? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If any man wants to come to the Father, he has to come through me, right? So there's this idea of Jesus' life. You, you think about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. What does Jesus refer to himself? In John 15, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear much fruit. This is the sign of life. How do you know that a tree is living? By the fruit that it bears, right? And so the, the fruit that it bears is not law. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Law is just an illustration of how you miss the mark. It's an illustration of how we blow it every single day. Paul says that it's like a mirror that we look into, and that mirror reflects what we're supposed to look like. It represents the moral values of Almighty God, yet it's an impossible standard for you and I to keep. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does three things. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. He confronts sin... He forgives sinners and he changes hearts. That's what Jesus does. That's what he's trying to develop in this story of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's trying to to develop as he talks about the law. What does he do? He confronts sin, he forgives sinners, and he transforms hearts. So so if if you look at this, now we go on down to verse 48. He says, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, no pressure. It's easy, right? What is, what is this thing that Jesus is talking about? Because again, he's just proven to us through everything he said that we can't keep the law. So now why does he say be perfect? What he's saying is that this word that he uses here is actually whole or complete. Become complete as your father in heaven is complete. Okay, and this again is a heart issue. I want to look at something. Gracie preached on this um, a couple weeks ago, John chapter 8, and I just want to turn there because I think this is the perfect uh, illustration for how Jesus deals 
with sin and specifically with sinners. Um, I know when I was growing up in church, I heard people say a lot, you know, you can hate the sin but love the sinner. And I remember um, when I was in Bible college, I was probably very akin to uh, Simon the Zealot in my viewpoint. I, I, was, I was pretty passionate about the law of God. Um, the good news is, as a college sophomore in Bible college, I knew pretty much everything there was to know about Scripture. So that was good. And, um, and it's amazing how over time, after 25 years of preaching, and the more I study, the more I realize I just don't know that much. And, um, and that was the difference between sophomore Bible college me and now me. And I remember there was this radio talk show, and this guy was kind of bashing Christians, and it was right on the front end talking about um, how Christians are so hateful to people who are in sin, right? And I remember him talking about this one thing, and he, and he, he, gets, he gets on this big tirade, and he talks about how you cannot love sinners and hate their sin. It's not possible. What a ridiculous assertion. He goes on this big thing, and I'm like, what? What are you talking? So I get on the phone to call into the radio talk show, right? Because I am a Bible college sophomore. I got this thing. And, and I remember, though, in that moment, just thinking how flawed this guy's logic was. And, and even, I, I didn't, I, I got on the phone and I froze. Like, it's one of those moments where in my head, I had this whole thing rehearsed. And it was like, you know, like, you rehearse something in the shower and you know exactly how you want it to go. And then the moment it comes time to deliver it, you're like, that didn't go at all like I planned, right? How many of you have that moment? Okay, good. So I had that moment on radio. I get on there and I'm like, uh, and my heart was beat like, it felt like it was in my throat and it's beating. And I'm like, I'm talking to millions of people right now. And you know, there's this moment and I probably wasn't millions of people. It was kind of a small local talk show, but in my head, like it was broadcast all over the world. And you know, there's this big thing. And so I get on there and I'm listening. I'm like, oh man, I totally screwed this up. But as I kind of have grown in my faith, and, and even as I have kids, I look at my kids and I'm like, there are so many times my kids do things that I absolutely hate that they did it, right? Does that mean I hate them? No. Is that a requirement? Like if my kid throws a fit and gets mad and stomps off and I say, man, I hate that behavior. Does that necessarily mean that I hate my child? Of course not. It's ridiculous. And so, so this idea is that, that you can absolutely hate sin and still love people who are sinful. We absolutely can, and we should. We should be uncompromising, unwavering when it comes to sin. Sin is sin, and I'm not the one that decides what sin is sin. The Bible is the, is the arbiter of what is sin and what is not sin. And I just go with the Bible. I've had people ask me, hey, is, is homosexuality a sin? What do you think? And I'm like, I don't think anything. I just tell you what the Bible says. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Right? It's not me who believes something or doesn't believe. It's what the Bible says. And I've chosen this to be the absolute foundation and core of my life. And whatever it says is what I believe. I don't get to decide whether lying is okay. The Bible decided whether it's okay. I don't get to decide whether adultery is okay. God decided whether it was okay. And so I just communicate what the word says about it. 
You know, and I, I see these, these Christian leaders, they have these panic moments on TV where they can't, like, say what's sin and what's not sin. And they, like, freeze up. And I watch them, like, try to talk around stuff. And I'm like, just say, I don't have an opinion on it, but I'll tell you what the Bible says. And just take them to, the, let me quote Romans 2 to you. Here. This is what it says. I don't know. You could do with it what you want to do with it. But I don't have an opinion on it. This is what Jesus said. This is what Paul said. Okay, so, so in John chapter 8, we see this, this beautiful story emerge. Uh, verse 1 says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Where, where have we read about Jesus at the Mount of Olives? It's where the Sermon on the Mount took place, right? So Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious laws and the, uh, law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. <clears throat> Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? This is, this is the kind of the trap that everybody sets Right? The law says, but what do you say? The law says, but what do you say? Well, I'm going to go with what the law says, right? I'm going to go with what the scripture says. I'm going to go with what it's. But listen to how Jesus does this, because again, Jesus is this new paradigm of how we interact with the law. And look at what he says. He says, um, They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, that is what the law says, right? This is what Jesus is saying. He says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So not only is Jesus okay with this woman's sin being confronted, because he doesn't try to stop them from confronting her sin, does Does he? No, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, it's not that big of a deal, guys. Stop making such a big deal out of it. He doesn't say that, does he? He allows her sin to be confronted. But he doesn't stop there. He also confronts the Pharisees and the religious, religious leaders' sin. He says, hey, in this moment, since we're confronting sin, I'm glad you brought it up. Let's confront some sin. I have this belief that that's what he was writing in the dirt that day. He's writing the name of each guy and their sin right next to it. I don't have any biblical proof that that's what he's doing, but we read this story and it says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, oldest to youngest, until Jesus alone was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Why did it go from oldest to youngest, do you think? Because the older you are, the more sins you got, right? Had a whole lifetime to build a resume of sin, right? So one by one. I think I probably better go back and get things right. Now what's happening here? So he confronts sin, and then it says, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? 
So what Jesus is doing here again, he's showing the proper perspective because these sinful men don't have the right to condemn anyone, right? What is condemnation? Condemnation is the execution of a sentence. You're condemned. I'm executing a judgment on you that says this is what should happen to you. And so Jesus says, hey, where are your accusers? Do none of them condemn you? Now, the assumption that's made here is I'm still here and I have every right to condemn you. But what's in my hands? Nothing. I'm not going to throw a rock at you. See, your death, as Gracie puts so succinctly, won't be necessary because my death will be enough. That's so cool. Think about that. Jesus is standing face to face with this sinful woman. He never once tells her that her sin is okay. He stands there as the only one who has the ability and the authority to condemn her, and he chooses not to do so. And then he makes one final statement. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So again, Jesus confronts sin, he forgives sinners, and he transforms hearts. The idea here is that once you meet Jesus, everything changes from within. Everything starts to change. Your view of the world changes. Your view of sin changes. Your view of people changes. And this ethic of the cross of Christ shifts your belief system to where you want to love desperately all of these people around you. Not because they're broken, not because they're whatever, but because they're image bearers of Christ. That's why we love. Because I hear people all the time say, well, I love church if it wasn't so full of people. I'm like, guys, we're image bearers of Christ. I've said this before here, but how far would you get with me if you said, Pastor, man, I really love you, but I hate Mary. You would not get very far with me. We would not have a deep relationship. Because if you hate my bride, you hate me. So how can we say that we love God who we can't see when we don't love our brothers who we can see? Man, this is so good. So be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. 548, we're back in Matthew. It's interesting because the, the term Christian actually isn't used in the New Testament. People in the New Testament that followed Jesus were called the way or people of the way. Uh, the term Christian became used later on. Some of your Bible versions may use the word Christian, but it's used to refer to these people that are called the way. It's not actually the word that's used. But the word most scholars believe was kind of invented as an offhanded dismissive term for Christians because it literally means little Christs. You little Christs. It's like, 
a bunch of little Christs. And there are other scholars that say that these Christians, this sect of, of Jews that became followers of Jesus, so radically changed the way that life was lived and society functioned that they couldn't help but categorize them. They had to come up with a category for them. And so what was a dismissive term became kind of a term of respect and honor for these people. Hey, they really are kind of like little Christ. They look like him. They look like him. And, and I think when, when we think about what it means to live out our relationship with God, it's not law-based. When you think about my family, um, my kids don't have a relationship with me based on the rules that I have in our home. I have very strong rules in our home, and everyone is expected to follow them, right? And I don't, I don't mess around with the rules of our house. I also have had to, I will say, over my life as a parent so far, I've had to spank my children very little, and, and the reason is, is because they understand relationship to me and they understand the culture of our home and the rules help define the culture of our home. This is what it looks like to be in this family, right? And so it's, it's a part of the culture. And so as you're inputting culture into the heart, conformity to the culture of the home kind of follows it flows out of that heart like they have my heart they relate to me as their dad and so they naturally latch on to what is the culture of our home so they don't really I don't even think our kids really think about the rules so much they just think this is who we are this is how we interact this is how we operate we have a very short mission statement for our family it's just building relationships for the sake of eternity I remember when our kids were little, we would be talking to people for a long time. And when you're a kid, man, your parents talk to people, it feels like they're talking forever, right? And you're, you're just over there like, uh, and, and, and I remember when Gracie was probably about six or seven years old, she'd be, she'd tap on me like, daddy, 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 hang on, baby, just a minute, daddy, daddy. Sweetie, hang on just a second. Daddy, daddy. And my kids, it took them a while to get patience, but they got it. And so they, she, would, she would just stand there, and I would, I would get down and say, what you need, babe? And she'd say, how long are we going to be? <laughs> and then I would ask her, what's our mission statement? And she would say, building relationships for the sake of eternity. In the moment, she wasn't feeling building relationships for the sake of eternity because she wanted to go get some food, right? But, but she understood. And now, when I watch my kids, I watch them build relationships for the sake of eternity. They want to connect with people. They get the DNA of why we do what we do. And Abby, this morning, I, I woke Abby up, and I was like, hey, baby, how are you this morning? She goes, it's the Lord's Day. And I was like, wow, you sound like a preacher's kid. What, was that programmed? Where did you get that? 
right? And she's like, she's like, I can't wait to go to church. And I'm like, that's awesome. And she's like, I'm going to pray in the spirit when I get there. And I was like, well, that's awesome too, you know? And I'm like, where, where does this come from? You know, like what, it's not like I'm forcing, I'm like, hey, Abby, I need some sermon material later. So I would like you to say, it's the Lord's day, and then follow that with, you know, it's just in her, right? It's, it's part of the culture that's in there, and it's not rules-based. It's relationship-based. It's facilitated through interaction. It's facilitated by watching it get lived out. That's what it means to be in this relationship with God, where, yes, you're following the law, but you're not following the law because you're forced to. You're following the law because it's the culture of heaven. And you're like, oh, yeah. It just makes sense. Of co- Why would I do anything in rebellion and defiance to the one that I love so much? Like, I love him. I want to facilitate relations. And you just kind of naturally, you're not even really focused on following the rules. It just happens. That's why Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Again, it's not, it's not something like you walk into an apple orchard and you look at all of these apple trees and all the apple trees are over there with little blossoms on them. They're like, come on, fruit, 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 fruit. I really need fruit to grow, right? It just happens. It's an outflow of that branch being connected to that trunk. It just happens, And that's what I want to get to you guys today. It is so critical that you understand this. The the following the law thing is not the point. It just reflects the culture of the relationship. So if you hear people say, well, I'm not under law anymore. I'm under grace. So I'm going to hit the bar tonight and really get sloshed out of my mind. You know that they don't understand the culture of heaven. They don't understand the culture of relationship with Jesus. If you hear people say, hey, you know what? I'm not under law anymore. I'm under grace so I can have sex with whoever I want to whenever I want to. Well, you don't understand the culture of heaven. You don't understand the nature of relationship with your heavenly father. If my kids said, hey, I'm not under the rules of my house anymore, so I'm going to do things that are hateful to my dad and mom. I'm going to steal money from my mom's purse. I'm going to do things that are wrong, that are offensive to my family. Well, you don't understand the culture of the family. You don't understand the nature of the relationship. And so that's what this is all about. And so the thing that I want you to understand is that we don't relate to the law as law keepers. We relate to the law as sons. And so we get back to this idea where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And and, and the people that were sitting in a circle around Jesus in that moment would have known what he was talking about. They would have known that he was talking about Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah so beautifully paints this picture of what's happening in this moment. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, 
though I loved them as a husband loves his wife. Do you hear the language here? Even in the Old Testament, the language is language of relationship. Even though I had a deep covenantal relationship with the people of Israel, they had an adulterous affair on me. They breached my trust with other gods. You see this? Now he says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write the law on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you hear this? And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I'll forgive the wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Do you hear this? This is the the nature of a family covenant relationship where Jesus says, I'm inviting my bride to come. I'm inviting my bride to come. It's the gospel. And so when we break God's law, we should feel disappointed. But we shouldn't feel disappointed that we've broken the law. We should feel, feel disappointed that we've broken God's heart. Right? Like when, when I sin, I don't want to feel bad that I didn't make the rule. I want to feel bad that, man, I broke God's heart. I wounded the one that loves me so much. I don't want that. I don't want to cause roadblocks in our relationship. Will you stand with me? What the law could not do, the Spirit does. What the law could not do, the Spirit does. Father God, today, I just pray for each person in this room, God, that we would understand more deeply what it means to live in relationship with you, transformative, loving relationship with you. God, what used to be an external standard is now an internal reality for us as followers of Jesus. Lord, we want to live out this covenant relationship. We want to live out obedience. We want obedience to become the natural, normal outflow of our relationship with you just because we love you. God, I believe with all of my heart that Christianity without sanctification is Christianity without Christ. God, I pray that you would help us as your people to develop such a relationship with you that it would change our cultural standard. It would change who we are. Allow your spirit to empower us, God. Lord, I know that Christ died to forgive me. But he also died so that I could have relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you love me that much. I pray, Lord, that we would live out this New Testament life with grace because everything changed here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.